Well, just a, a little about me. I think most of you know my story, but um, uh, Connie and I, we've been married for, it'll be 40 years this August, so that's pretty cool, yeah. We're excited. Um, and um, for a while, we were over at the bridge. I, we pastored there for several years. And then in 2013, God redirected us. And so for the last two years, we've been going to China. And we've been spending about half our year in China, and then we've been spending the other half of the year traveling to other parts of the world teaching. And our, our mission is to train national leaders so that they can reproduce themselves in the churches that they lead. And so um, it's actually kind of an exciting journey for us. Um, we are grateful to you. You guys have an awesome pastor in Rob. I hope you know that. And you have an awesome associate in Brett. And Marty is amazing. Your worship. And all of the guys on staff, you just have an amazing staff. I think we ought to give God a hand for what he has done, providing the leadership for you guys so that you can continue to be God's people. It, it is really amazing. So um, we did start a two-part series on Wednesday night uh, on 2 Corinthians. We're looking at chapters 3 through 5. And let me tell you what happened, because we are having a little change today. Uh, I was going to continue on with verse 5, and I, I went home, and as you always do, you ask your wife, how did, how, what did you think? And she said, I was okay. <laughs> and of course, in my humility, I said, what? I thought it was great. And she said, actually, it was. But you raced through 2 Corinthians 3 which for me was the greatest part of the whole message. And I, I was trying to take notes, and you were on to 2 Corinthians 4, and I couldn't even catch up with you. And, and I thought about it, and you know, doggone it, she was right. And so rather than moving on to chapter 5, we're actually going to go back to chapter 3 today because I, I want you to understand so clearly what it is to be living under the new covenant that Jesus brought. You know, if you've uh, looked at, and by the way, did you all get the note paper? Yeah. You all got that great. Uh, in Luke chapter 22, and it's so cool that we're celebrating communion today. But, oh, and also if you need Bibles. Uh, yes, because you will need Bibles today, so grab those if they're coming up. In Luke chapter 22, verses 19 and 20, on the first time the communion was ever celebrated, Jesus said this, And when he had taken bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave, them to them, gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, and he said, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So what is the new covenant? In order to understand the new covenant, we need to understand the word covenant. Covenant is simply a contract or a commitment. And there are two kinds of covenants in the Bible. There are conditional covenants. A conditional covenant is, if you do this, I'll do this. And so if, if you were buying my house, we would sign a conditional covenant. I'd say, if you pay me $10 million, I live down in, you know, Sherwood or wherever. You know, if you pay me $10 million, I will let you have my house. That's a conditional covenant. You have to live up to your end, or I don't have to live up to my end. But then there's an unconditional covenant. An unconditional covenant is where I simply say, I will do this. I will make a commitment to you that is unconditional. Now I want to take you back into Exodus because when we see the old covenant, um, the old covenant is the covenant that God made with the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. That was a conditional covenant. And I want to explain to you. So if you're taking notes, just write down Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 8. God says this, Now therefore... 
If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Notice the gigantic word, if. God is saying to the children of Israel, if you will do this, then you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you, now God is speaking to Moses, so the you is Moses. These are the words that you shall speak to the nation of Israel. Now you go down to the next verse and Moses now presents this contract to Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And the people arrogantly answered, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Do you hear what they're saying? No problem. Yeah, we'll be perfectly obedient to God. I mean, God's standard isn't that high. You shall be holy as I, the Lord, am holy. No problem. We can live up to that. And I think it took them a week to break the covenant. In fact, they broke the very first part of the covenant. You shall have no other gods before me. And so the history of the Old Testament is kind of a tragic history because it's Israel failing, God removing his hand of blessing and bringing on his hand of punishment to them, the people groaning, returning to God, and God returns his blessing to them. And on and on it goes until finally, with the northern kingdom of Israel, God utterly destroys them as a nation when Assyria comes and takes them away. With the nation of Judah, they lasted a couple years longer, but even there, God had to actually wipe them out as a nation. Now, he did restore Judah. But Israel was essentially destroyed because of their sin. Because they failed to live up to God's standard and what happened was God judged them. Now what's so cool about the grace of God is even though they broke their covenant with God time and time and time again, God didn't throw them away. Because now we come to Jeremiah 31. And here, God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, where I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. God says, even though you blew it, even though you demolished the old covenant, we're going to make a new covenant. This new covenant is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. You know, this begins to help you understand how much we mean to God. God is not just angry at them like some judge in the sky. God is wounded. He says, I was your husband. And you cheated on me. Over and over and over again. But in spite of that, This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is the prophecy that Jesus fulfilled when he went to the cross. This is the covenant that we celebrate every time we take the bread and drink the cup. We are celebrating the fact that we are a part of a new covenant that Jesus brought. Now what I want to do, if you take your Bibles, we're going to look at, we're going to spend the rest of our time in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I want to help you understand how the new covenant is different from the old covenant because I want to share something with you and I hope you're not offended with this. 
I believe that most Christians in America are still living as if they're under the old covenant. They're still trying to please God. They're still trying to obey God. They're still gritting their teeth and saying, the answer to my sin is just try harder. And I see Christians who are exhausted trying to live up to a standard of righteousness in their own strength. And I want to help you understand what the blessing of the new covenant is because it's a totally different way of living. Before we do that, let me give you just an overview of 2 Corinthians 3. This is a comparison of the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant is a covenant of letters. And Paul is going to tell us those letters were actually written by the finger of God on tablets of stone. Would that be cool to see that? I mean... What I would love to have seen, I don't know if it was like Cecil B. DeMille had it going or, you know, fire writing into the rock or something. That had to be a glorious thing for Moses to witness. God writing with his own finger his law on tablets of stone. Wow! So that's what Paul is talking about when he says that the old covenant is of the letter. The only problem with the old covenant is God told them how, what it was to be righteous. But they didn't have the power to be righteous. The new covenant is of the spirit. God's standard hasn't changed. It's still one of perfection. But now, he gives us power to live up to that. The old covenant kills. Why does it kill? Because I can't live up to that standard. And guess what the wages of sin are? Guess what the wages of failure are? It's death. The new covenant gives life. The old covenant brings condemnation. The new covenant brings righteousness. The new covenant also brings righteousness and an intimacy with God that is absolutely amazing. The old covenant was a glory that was fading away. And we'll talk about what that means. But the new covenant is a covenant where the glory of God grows to greater lengths in your greater depths in your life day by day all right second corinthians chapter one, three verses one through three let's look first of all at this paul says are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you you are our letter written in our hearts known and read by all men being manifested that you are a letter of Christ cared for by us, not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but of human hearts. This language is kind of confusing. I just want to break it down and and simplify it for you. When Paul talks about letters of commendation, back in those days, if I were a traveling speaker and I were going into a new town where people didn't know me, they, I would bring with me a letter of commendation from somebody famous, somebody that the people in this city really valued. And I would say, see, Ed from Athens says I'm a great guy, so you guys ought to listen to me. So my letter of commendation is what validates me as someone worthy to listen to. And Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 3, hey, do we need letters of commendation? And Paul then says, no, we don't. You, Corinthians, to whom I have taught and ministered to and loved and built Christ into you, you are our letter. Now, here's what I want you to grab a hold of, and this is so cool. We're going to discover in just a minute that we're all letters of Christ. But not only are we a letter of Christ... But we are writing our letters into the lives of people that God has put into our lives. And this is what Paul is saying. What's the, what's the validation for my ministry? Corinthians, it's you guys. And this gets to be so important. And I want you to catch something right here before we move on. You know, there are a lot of pastors who are great and they've got big churches and they 
you know, they've got doctorates and they've got lots of things going on for them. And yet you look at their families and they're a mess. You want to know something? When I want to look at the validity of someone's ministry, I don't look at the size. I look at his family. What, what has he written in the lives of the people who are closest to him? The people who have seen him 24-7 all the time. What has he produced? And you know what's tragic in America? You look at a lot of pastors around the country. And pastors' kids are known for being the craziest, wildest, nuttiest, most sinful people in the whole school. Before we move on, I just want to ask you a question. Number one, who are you writing into? Whose lives are you writing into right now? And number two, what are you writing into their lives? I want to give you a few suggestions. With your family, with your coworkers, with people around you, do you encourage people to love and good works? Do you, do you stir people by your example and by your words that love is a priority of God? Do you stir them? And, and often when the Bible speaks of good works, in fact, more often than not, it speaks about sharing what we have with people in need. Are you writing those kind of things into people's lives that this is a priority of God? Do you turn people to God's word instead of man's wisdom? When people come to you for advice or you're, you're discipling somebody or you're building into somebody's lives or you're raising your kids or you're being a husband to your wife or a wife to your husband, do you encourage people to turn to God's word instead of this wisdom? Are you a person who's serving others and helping them to succeed? There's something I want you to grab a hold of before we move on. You are writing into people's lives. Whether you know it or not, whether you're doing it intentionally or not, you are writing into people's lives. And what I want to encourage you to do is to make sure that you're writing a message that is going to produce in them the freedom and joy of the new covenant. Now let's go on because Paul actually takes this a step further in verse 3. He says, it's manifested that you are a letter of Christ. Now Paul kind of changes the analogy. He's not talking about Paul writing into their lives. He's talking about the fact that you are being written into by Jesus Christ so that everybody can read you. Now the idea that Paul is giving is that you are a letter of commendation of Christ. So when people know that you're a Christian, they're going to read your life and decide whether Jesus is worth investigating or not. So again, the question comes, what are they reading? Have you ever heard that cliche that you're the only Bible that many people will ever read? There's a lot of truth to that, that people their journey towards God doesn't really get stimulated by them. Oh, a Bible. Now, uh, if you're a Gideon, you've probably heard millions of stories about how that has happened. But as many stories are there like that, most of them are people's journey towards God was started by another Christian. Isn't that the truth? In fact, at the Billy Graham crusade, when Billy Graham was doing all of his crusades, they did a study and they discovered that the average person who came forward to receive Christ at a Billy Graham crusade had had at least seven significant contacts with other believers. They didn't come just out of the blue and Billy Graham just went, wow, and they got saved. People had been pouring into their lives and Billy Graham, and he acknowledges, he was just the final step in the process. Here's the point. The old covenant was amazing. But fundamentally, the Old Testament was about words on rocks that nobody could live up to. 
The new covenant is about people. It's about Jesus writing into your life. And it's about your writing into the lives of other people. And you know what's so cool? You don't have to have a degree to do that. You don't have to have a position. You don't have to have pastor in front of your name or reverend or missionary or something like that. In the new covenant, we all can make an amazing difference in each other's lives. Now let's go on and let's look at the second characteristic of this new covenant. Starting with verse 4 going through 6. Such confidence we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the the spirit gives life. I don't know about you, but for me, it's kind of intimidating to think of the fact that I'm writing into people's lives. Ooh, And you might think, I'm not up to that task. I'm not adequate for that. I can't do that. I can't write into people's lives about Jesus. I don't know enough. I'm not trained enough. I don't have enough degrees. All of those things. But guess what? In the new covenant, God is the one who makes you adequate. And when you start getting your eyes off of what you are, and who you are and how you've been trained or not been trained and get them on God and what he's already done in your life, you can have what Paul says is confidence. You can have confidence to speak into people's lives. You can have confidence to be an example. Now let's, we're going to take this even a step farther in verse 7 because we're going to see that the ministry of the new covenant is a ministry of glory and it actually begins to give us even more boldness. Paul says in verse 7, But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because the glory on his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail even more to be with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed... What had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses us. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is glory. Now that's really confusing to follow, isn't it? But let's just slow it down and and let me explain this to you. In Exodus 32, there's an interesting story about Moses. Moses goes into the presence of God And the glory of God is so amazing, Moses gets like a God burn, a God tan. You know how you've been spending time out in the sun and your your face kind of glows? Well, Moses came down and his face was shining so much, people were terrified of him. And so he would put a veil over his face. And as time went on, he kept the veil over his face Presumably, so that people wouldn't, you know, be afraid of the glory. But what Paul tells us is that the real reason he kept the veil over his face is that the glory would fade away as he was away from God. So Paul, or excuse me, Moses honestly, was kind of embarrassed. Hey, what's happening to my glory? You know, it's like when you've been on vacation and you get this great suntan and you feel, oh, I look great. But then about two weeks later, uh, back to the way I was. That's the way Moses was with his God tan. It was awesome, but it didn't last. And in order to keep the people from knowing that this glory was fading away, Moses continued to wear a veil. Guys, I want you to see something really important. Moses essentially felt like he had to hide from people. Because the glory of God on Moses was external. And because it was external, it would fade away. Paul says the glory we have 
is from the inside out. And the glory we have doesn't fade away as we're going to see at the end of this chapter. It actually grows greater and greater as we grow in Christ. So Paul is comparing the glory of the old covenant, which actually Paul really comes to the conclusion, hey, it's really not a glory at all. And you think, Paul, what are you talking about? I mean, tablets and stone, thunder and lightning on the mountain, pillar of fire by night and cloud by day. How much more glory could you have? But you guys, all of that glory never changed any of the Israelites. The whole generation of Israelites that witnessed all of that glory died in the wilderness with the exception of two guys, Joshua and Caleb. The whole two million people died in the wilderness in spite of the fact that they witnessed the glory of the old covenant. So the glory of the covenant is cool. Lots of fire, lots of flashing, lots of stuff. Moses had the sunburn going. You know, lots of stuff going on. But what the old covenant could not do was change one heart. Couldn't do it. That's why Paul calls it a ministry of death, a ministry of condemnation, a ministry of a fading glory. This is kind of confusing, and I I hope you're grabbing this because this is really important. The old covenant, standard of righteousness, you try to live up to that righteousness. New covenant. Jesus lived up to the standard of righteousness. See, that's what it means in Matthew when it says he fulfilled the law. And then God gives Jesus righteousness to you. Now catch this, 2 Corinthians 5.21, write that down in your notes. It says this, he made Jesus who knew no sin, Jesus had never sinned, to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, very complex wording, but let me break it down. When I'm teaching the kids this uh, passage, I, I present two report cards. And I say, what do you think I earn in my righteousness before God. And the kids love this. They say F minus, F minus, F minus. Not even a D, no, F. All Fs. That's what I get in my report card as I stand before God. Total, complete, utter failure. Then I put up, okay, report card. Jesus report card. What does Jesus get? Of course, it's A plus, 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 plus. You know, Jesus got A pluses in everything. He was perfectly absolutely righteous every day of his life on this earth. He fulfilled the law 100%. And this is so cool because when you became a Christian, God didn't simply take away your sin. He also gave you the righteousness of Jesus. So that when God looks at you, he sees you clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Now let me say something that may surprise you. There is nothing you can do to make yourself appear more righteous to God. You could have Bible studies for four hours a day, pray for the next four hours a day, witness for the next four hours a day. I mean, just, just... Be Johnny, you know, Christian all day long. And God wouldn't see you as any more righteous than he sees you right now. Because with all that you do, can you top the righteousness of Christ? I can't. And praise God, I don't have to. Because Jesus gave me his righteousness. 
Why is this important? This is so important because when I sin, you know what Satan comes and tells me? He says, God doesn't want to see you. He's mad at you. You shouldn't come into his presence now. You know, you're really going to get it. You know, so stay away from God. Do you get that kind of message when you blow it? I mean, it's, it's like Satan says, stay away from God. He's mad at you. He doesn't want to see you right now. You need to spend some time away and let God cool off a little bit. And then you can come back. That's Satan's message. You know what God's message is? You sinned? Hey, please come running into my presence. Don't walk, run. Confess your sin, let's get it resolved, let's get the forgiveness taken care of, and let's get you and I back in fellowship. Let's go on and see some of the impact that this has in our life. Paul says, verse 12 now, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look at intently at the end of what was fading away. Why did Moses wear a veil? Because he didn't want the people looking at him and saying, hey, what happened to your glory? Moses is kind of fading there. You're looking a little pale. You guys, catch this. We don't have to hide from people. We don't have to pretend that everything's great in our lives. We don't have to make up our own glory because we have the glory of God within us. And as we looked at last Wednesday night, that glory actually is wonderful because it's in our jars of clay, our earthly bodies, which don't have any glory. And the cool thing about the glory of God is it actually shines brighter in your weakness. So don't you, you don't have to pretend to be together. You don't have to pretend to be strong. You don't, have to be, you, you don't have to pretend to be some kind of Christian you are. You can be who you are. Take the veil down. And let people see, yeah, boy, my family, we're struggling. We don't know how this is going to turn out, but we're turning it over to God, and we want to see God glorified in this. But man, we're, we're actually having a hard time. The new covenant sets you free to be real. And may I say, uh, again, I don't want this to be a, a downer for you, but as I, I've done a lot of these uh, marriage workshops and we've had a lot of non-Christians come in and you know what I find? The non-Christians actually tend to be more honest about things than the Christians do. How's your marriage? Oh, great in the Lord. Well, how is it really? Oh, it's great in the Lord, you know. And the non-Christians will come in and, and uh, it was so funny. I was down in Columbia giving a, a marriage workshop and these guys came in, a couple of the couples, and they said, this better be good because we're hanging by a thread. You talk about a little intimidation. Okay, this better be a good workshop because we're about to step out if it's not. But you know what was amazing is their honesty opened them up for amazing healing. Six of those couples actually came to Christ as a result of the marriage workshop. It was amazing because they were willing to be honest. And yet so often we go into these kind of things and our key goal is to protect our reputation. Honey, don't say anything. Don't tell them about that. So funny, when we're doing it, we'll, we'll, uh, somebody will start to share. And you know what I see? I see the nudge. <laughs> Don't share that. Don't be open. Don't let people know we have problems. Because that's old covenant thinking. The old covenant says you have to pretend. You have to put a veil. You have to put on your happy face. You walk into church, you've just been yelling at your wife and your kids, you've just kicked your dog, and then you get into church, how are you doing? Great in the Lord, oh, praise God, we're so happy to be here. <laughs> it's okay to walk in and say, you know what, life stinks right now, but God is faithful. 
So you don't just leave it with life stings. You, you, you want to add, but God is faithful. That's, that's the great thing about being a Christian. It's life can stink, but in that stinkiness, God is still faithful. So the new covenant, when you really begin to understand, this has never been about your righteousness. This has always been about the righteousness of Christ. So with that, you can say like Paul, therefore having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and we're not like Moses who used to put a veil over our face. We'll take the veil down and you can see who we really are. A couple of chapters later in 2 Corinthians, Paul admits that he was depressed. 2 Corinthians 7, 6 and 7, he says, but God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. So the great apostle Paul shares with these people that he was struggling with depression. And that he actually needed somebody to come into his life and speak into him for comfort. It's so cool when you can just be authentic like that and you don't have to maintain a front or a mask or a facade. And all of that comes when you start to understand the new covenant. Again, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. If you're taking notes, please write this one down. I'm not sure where I am. We're way behind. Okay. Paul says, but we have this treasure. The treasure is the treasure of the Holy Spirit, the treasure of the new covenant in earthen vessels. Why did God put that treasure in this? I mean, look at Steve come to Christ and everybody's going, yeah, right. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. See, God wants his glory to shine, but when his glory shines through you, he doesn't want people looking at you. He wants people looking to him. And so that's why he put this glory in me and not only in superstars. Let's go on. Not only can we be authentic, but we can gain intimacy. Verse 14 through 16. But their minds, speaking of the people of the Old Testament, Old Covenant, were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Now Paul, in order to understand this, he's switching his idea of what the veil is. Now the veil is is a veil over the hearts of the Israelites that are separating them from God. The veil is the hardness of their hearts. Did you ever wonder how people could miss Jesus when Jesus was here? How how could you not see him? My goodness, he's raising people from the dead. He, He heals a person who had never walked in his life, and the guy is jumping around and walking, and the, the Pharisees are going, harumph, harumph, harumph. He did it on the Sabbath day. You know, and the, you know, it's, it's like, what? how could you be so blind? He raises Lazarus from the dead three day, for after he'd been dead for three days, and what did the Pharisees say? Hmm, looks like we're going to have to kill Lazarus too. Because if they see him, people are going to start believing in Jesus. And you know what John 12 says? It said that many of the leaders actually did believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But they wouldn't confess him because they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Wow! John 12, 31, if you want to know what that verse is. Now, listen to this. The people who crucified Jesus, most of them knew that they were crucifying the promised Messiah. And they did it anyway. Because they wanted to hold on to the status quo of the Old Covenant. Wow. So that's what Paul's talking about. The veil is the hardness of their heart. But verse 16, 
But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now listen to what Paul is saying, you guys. As a Christian, there is nothing between you and God. I might as well go ahead. I'm going to offend you anyway. So one of the things that really drives me crazy in, in the Catholic Church, so I'll be honest with you, is the idea of going to a person to confess your sins. You guys, there is nothing or no one between you and God. The veil has been taken away. Now listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4. This is where this gets really exciting. So excited I can't even punch the button right. He says, therefore, since we have so great a high priest, Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hang on to that confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So when you come to Jesus, Jesus is saying, I can't understand why you're having trouble with that. I wish you'd get your life together and then come to me. That's not Jesus. Everything you've gone through, he has been tested. And so what is the conclusion? Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may, re- we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So can you only come to the throne of grace when you've been a good boy or girl this week? See, that's old covenant thinking. No, you run to the throne of grace when you have just blown it in the worst way you've ever blown it. Because where do you need God the most? When you've blown it. Where do you need to receive mercy? When you've sinned. When do you need grace? When you're weak, which is 24-7. So that's why he says, hey, you guys, we have this awesome high priest. He understands what you're going through. So let's run with confidence to the throne of grace. Now, this is going to be a little old for for some of you, but one of the greatest pictures I ever saw was when John F. Kennedy was president and his little son was playing in the desk. That desk was this amazing desk that was given by Queen Elizabeth, you know, all of this kind of stuff. You know, all the secret security agents are going, oh, uh, no, you can't see the president today. You can't see the president today. No, it'll be three years before you get to... And little John John just runs right into the presence of his daddy. Daddy! And all of the problems of the world stop right then and there because his son is there. Do you know what? That's how I picture God. He's running the universe. He's got, oh, Venus is a little out of line. Okay, let's fix that. He's got all of these things going on and you come into his presence and you say, Daddy. By the way, that's what Abba means. You know where it says we can cry out Abba, Father? That is the word for Daddy. So you walk into his presence and you say, Dad. And he says, what can I do for you? How can I help? How can I give you mercy? How can I give you strength? How can I give you grace today? Son, daughter, what can I do for you right now? There's nothing and no one between you and God. It's pure, total intimacy. What's so cool is you can tell God everything because he knows it anyway. You know how when you were a kid you didn't want to tell your mom you broke the window? God already knows you broke the window. So you can just be totally honest. Hey, God, you know, I broke the window. Yeah. I lied to my friend. I was angry. I, I really sinned against my wife, God. You know that. God says, okay, let's get mercy. The mercy takes care of the sin. And the grace is the strength to help you make things right with people. Let's go on. 17 and 18 tells us something amazing. Now where the, now the Lord is the Spirit. 
Don't get hung up on that. It's just talking about the unity of God. So, you know, the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Freedom. You guys, freedom is not the power to do whatever you want. Hey, I'm 21. I can drink. I can go get smashed. I can walk into a bar and I can order whiskey and vodka and gin and and all all sorts of mixed drinks. And I can drink till I'm drunk. Ah, freedom. Guess what happens when you practice that freedom? You become a slave. See, in this world, the freedom of this world will always lead you to slavery. But the freedom of God is the power to live under the new covenant of forgiveness and of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? That freedom just gets freer and freer and freer as you go on. Just real quick, John 7, 27 through 39. Jesus said, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And if you've heard me speak, you know that come to me and drink is in the present tense. It's not a one-time drink. Let, come to me and come to me again and come to me again and come to me every day and keep on drinking from me. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. See, there again, the, new coven- the old covenant is outside in. You try harder to get righteous. The new covenant is inside out. Jesus makes you righteous by his work, and then you start to live out his righteousness. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. See... This will sound crazy. The Gospels should actually be in the Old Testament. Because the, all of the disciples of Jesus before he died were still living under the Old Covenant. And you think, wow, it would have been so cool to be a disciple with Jesus right there. But you know what Jesus said? He said, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the Spirit won't come. So according to Jesus, it's better for you and I to be living today with the Spirit of God in us than it was to be living in that day with Jesus with us. Last verse. This is a favorite. Paul says, but we all, with unveiled face, we don't have anything between us and God anymore, beholding us in a mirror the glory of the Lord... So why do I read the Bible? Well, because God says I have to. Okay. There. Seven minutes. Is that enough? How much do I have to read? How many verses do I have to read every day before God's okay with me? Old covenant thinking. New covenant. Why do I read God's word? Because I want to see God's glory. Why do I sit down and share with other believers? I want to see God's glory in you, and I want you to see God's glory in me. But we all, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, now catch this, are being transformed. All of your English grammar nuts, is that active voice or passive voice? It's passive. It's so cool. We don't transform ourselves. We are being transformed. In the new covenant, you, in the old covenant, you transform yourself by just trying harder. And oh my goodness, it gets so tiring. In the new covenant, you are transformed as you grow in your knowledge of God. We are being transformed from glory to glory. In other words, from from one experience of God's glory to a greater experience of God's glory. And then Paul says, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Here's my prayer. I would love to see you 
learn to rest in the new covenant. I hope God loves me today. You don't have to hope that. You know that. If you're a child of God, he loves you. There is therefore now no condemnation. If you want to grow in Christ, don't just try harder. Learn how to walk by the Spirit. If, if you want to love people more, don't grit your teeth and say, okay, I'm going to love. Walk by the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is, let's try that again. The fruit of the Spirit is love. See, you work on walking by the Spirit. The Spirit works on producing love in you. It gets so cool when you get this right. And so it's not that you'll start doing a whole bunch of different things. That's not the point. The point is you will be doing things with a different motivation. Oh, I've got to please God. No. Why do I live the Christian life? Because my life is pleasing to God. I don't do it to try to please God. I do it because my life is pleasing to God because I'm in the new covenant. Why do I read the Bible? I want to see the glory of God. Why do I love people? Because the Spirit of God is producing love in me. It gets very, very enjoyable. Even in tough times to live in the new covenant. And so now we want to take a minute and celebrate the new covenant. Guys, when you take this bread, unleavened because leaven is actually a sign of evil in the Bible. And so this, this bread has no leaven in it. It, is, it. it represents the purity of Jesus' body. And Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. When I think of taking the bread, I think of, of the fact that this represents not just the death of Christ, but it represents the life of Christ that fulfilled all righteousness that he has given to me. And when I take the cup, the cup is the symbol of my total forgiveness. Do you remember the old hymn, What Can Wash Away My Sin? What's the next line? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So this is what we're celebrating So I want to encourage you as we celebrate communion, celebrate it with this prayer that, Lord, may I live this week with the joy and thanksgiving and power that you brought to me when you died on the cross and you rose from the dead and you ascended to heaven and you sent the Holy Spirit. So if our servers would come forward, let's pray. Make this a time of really enjoying what Jesus has done. Father, as we uh, prepare our hearts uh, to celebrate what you've done for us, oh God, would you excite us about living this new covenant life even this week? In Jesus' name, amen.